Welcome to the Kenny Chester Podcast. I am your host, Kenny Chester, and today we're going to break in on our normal posting schedule, and we're going to do a Chester Presser concerning the Ukrainian-Russian war that's unfolding right now in real time. I'm not sure what how you follow these things, if you're following on news channels like 24-hour cable, uh, cable net channels, or if you're on a social media platform looking at videos on a TikTok, or if you're following with uh, Twitter. Uh, many of you know my uh, preference for Twitter to get media like this and, and news. I uh, enjoy that platform for stuff like this, specifically for world events, because you can see things happening in real time. Now, the issue with that type of media consumption is that sometimes you get a lot of information. People are trying to be the fastest without being the uh, most correct. And so I was talking to a friend earlier, and I said, I feel like there's a digital fog of war. And I'm no way saying that what we're experiencing on trying to read about and consume media or find news stories about it is any way comparable to war itself. But I'm saying the fog of war, that confusion of of chaos that, you know, the cloud of war brings with it that, you know, you're not exactly sure what's going on. I was likening to that, like you you take in these stories and these numbers and you want to know what's going on, but... There's this this cloud that's you know hanging over. You got competing narratives. You're not really sure which numbers to believe. And so we're going to try to cut through some of that today. Um, I, I really hadn't planned on weighing in, and I'll give you some of my thinking of why. And then I'm going to share some articles with you that I have found very enlightening and um, kind of explain my thinking right now on it. Uh, I want to give a shout out to a young man. His name is Landon Bateman. He contacted me uh, a couple days ago before the actual invasion took place. And he asked, hey, will you ever do an episode on the Russian-Ukrainian situation or Russia-Ukraine situation? And this was my response to him. And my feelings of this have not changed. But I do realize that some people out there uh, want some sense of this to be made. And maybe they're not reading what I'm reading. And so, again, I'm no political expert or geopolitical expert. And so this is my response to him, and then we'll go into uh, cite some sources that are smarter than me, and maybe that I've that I've found that's helped me, and maybe I can help somebody out there. Uh, this is what I said. My response was, I feel woefully inadequate regarding the situation. To be honest, I know some of the contributing factors, but otherwise, I'm I'm out of my league when it comes to certain geopolitical conflicts. He says he understands. He's thankful for the response. I said I may address it on some type of news to me uh, and try to make sense of it, but I can't speak, you know, with any authority on the subject. And he says, well, if you're able to do so. Um, I have a question that um, that I would like to have. Uh, would you have? Would you clear up a question I have? I said absolutely, if I can. He said, if this war is to take place, how will it affect the civilian population of America? And how will Congress react? I said, man, that's a great question. Uh, I imagine in the short term it's going to affect energy prices, higher prices than we're currently seeing. Uh, I don't know about you guys if your energy uh, has has went up, your energy utility bills and things of that nature. I imagine it's going to cause that to go up if there's any type of military action taken uh, by uh, our allies or ourselves. I said, I have no clue what Biden's going to do. And this is, once again, this is two days before the invasion. I said, I don't even know what Putin's going to do for that matter, but now we know. I said, he invaded Crimea while Obama was in office and we didn't and put any Americans on the ground or boots on the ground, I imagine we will hit them with some sanctions and many in the global community will condemn their action. Now, this is exactly what's happening today, that there's a lot of pronouncements. There's going to be some sanctions that come down. I also said, I imagine China will be more brazen with their incursions into Taiwan, depending on how this goes. If global leadership appears weak and ineffective, which is a high probability, I see China doing the same thing over there. And um, so far, I'm, I'm not saying that I'm right. And this is this is going exactly like I predicted. I, I don't I don't know. That's how I saw it unfolding. I think that's going to happen. I feel like there's going to be some um, gas prices going up and other, you know, again, like I said, utility things um, because of the conflict. 
One thing to keep in mind is all those things were happening already. I see uh, the Biden administration kind of posturing to blame um, this uh military uh, strike, this war, this conflict on uh, some of the things that already pre-existed. We already had pre-existing inflation. We already had some issues with supply chains. We already had high gas prices. Uh, I think all of this is going to affect this and compound those. I feel like this will be something given like a, a, a political a narrative that can say, well, it's because of this war when we all know, you know, it's happening before then. But I do think it will exasperate it. And so that's where we're at right now on that. Biden uh, gave a speech a couple hours ago in which he talked about uh, the sanctions that'll be heading down. I don't think the sanctions are going to be enough um, just because they don't, they're not worried about comfort of life. Uh, I read something today that I thought was really cool. I wanted to share this with the podcast. Uh, this is something that uh, George Orwell wrote uh, concerning Hitler, and it, it's trying to it's, he's trying to wake people up to the mindset that some people aren't. They don't hold and value the things that we hold and value in a Western society, and for good or for good or bad, you know. If, and and I'm, and Orwell's he's he's what he's about to say some biting commentary. You might not agree with any of it, but I, I see some wisdom in there. Just as 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 the way he lays out worldviews and computing computing world competing worldviews, and we're not saying this is the right way to look at it. We're just identifying the psychology of people that can do this. So this is what Orwell said, talking about uh, Adolf Hitler and Nazi Germany. Also, he has grasped the falsity of the hedonistic attitude to, to life. You say, Chesser, what's hedonism? hedonism that's like seeking pleasure uh, as, as a main component of, of life or, or, or that's your MO. He said, he's also grasped the falsity of hedonistic attitude to life. Nearly all Western thought since the last war, certainly all progressive thought, has assumed tact... Um, tacitly that human beings desire nothing beyond ease, security, and avoidance of pain. In such a view of life, there is no room, for instance, for patriotism and the military virtues. The socialist who finds his children playing with soldiers is usually upset, but he is never able to think of a substitute for the ten soldiers. Ten pacifists somehow won't do. Hitler, because of his own joyless mind, he fills it with an exceptional strength, knows that human beings don't only want comfort, safety, in short, walking hours, hygiene, birth control, and in general, common sense. They also, at least intermittently, won't struggle and self-sacrifice, not to mention drums, flags, and loyalty parades. However, there may... However they may be as economic theories, fascism and Nazism are psychologically far sounder than any hedonistic conception of life. The same is probably true of Stalin's militarized version of socialism. All three of the great dictators have enhanced their power by imposing intolerable burdens on their people, whereas socialism and even capitalism is more in a more grudging way, have said to the people, I offer you a good time. Hitler has said to them, I offer you struggle, danger, and death. And as a result, a whole nation flings itself at its feet. Perhaps later on they will get sick of it and change their minds, as it as at the end of the last war. After a few years of slaughter and starvation, happen, greatest happiness of the greatest number is a good slogan. But at this moment, better, uh, better an end with horror than a horror without end is the winner. Now that we are fighting against the man who coined it, we ought not to underrate its emotional appeal. Now you say, wow, that's Orwell talking. That's not one of his books. No, this is what he said in 1940. So this is before the uh, America even 
entered the war when it was raging conflict, and he was trying to explain why a group of people would 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 so much embrace that. And he he was outlining the two views of life: is life for pleasure, or is there a group of people, or is it innate in all of us that want some type of struggle? And if you uh, assign purpose with that struggle, as as Hitler did, we're not saying it was right. We're saying he typed in psychologically to something that people. Um, some see the world that way and they see themselves that way. And so um, I thought it was a very good uh, explanation to how a leader can mobilize a country uh, or an army to do so, that, certain things. Um, and, and again, I want to be very clear when we talk about uh, Russia and Russia's leadership and the country invading another country. I, I, I feel this deeply today because I know people in Eastern Europe and I've been to Russia. I've, I've, I've actually made great connections with the people there. I know some Ukrainians. Um, I've, I've recently, many of you know, because I did it on the podcast, have returned from Poland. And there were Russians and uh, Ukrainians and um, all type of different Eastern European uh, nationalities represented at that conference. And those people are, are sweet people. And I, I want to say something very clearly that if you watch, if you're looking online for videos, if you want any type of inspiration that are, that are the inspirational things, there's, there's a lot of devastation and a lot of um, uh, Cities that have been uh, completely, you know, destroyed, or, or parts and sections of cities in Ukraine, um, you can get you can get your fix on those videos. But I'd also recommend searching and, and looking at some of these videos of these protests, uh, even there in Russia. Uh, I've seen some footage uh, from people taking to the streets and protesting this war. Now you say, well, that's you know that's the least that some that that could do over there. And, and you got to understand that these people are risking so much when they protest. It's not like in America where we have the right to peacefully assemble. It's these people are putting literally their lives on the line. There was already people being arrested and, and taken, and they were invoking COVID measures and that thing. But we know better than that. Russia is not a free um, nation. And these people, uh, and I, I noticed there was like, a, a, I saw a Twitter thread of this uh, man that was chronicling all these Russian celebrities coming out, uh, out against this, this uh, against war, and they were being very vague when it comes to um what was going on, but the fact is that that they're so um, they're so famous and 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 easily recognizable and identifiable and discoverable in Russia that if they would come out and say something like Vladimir Putin is a tyrant and evil and a dictator, um, they could literally be dis- disappeared before um, the night is out. That's that's the kind of thing that they face over there. It's not freedom of speech. Uh, Putin has um, time and time again poisoned political enemy, uh, enemies and killed them and, and jailed them and uh, uses a threat. I, I saw an incredible video just from a couple days ago of him humiliating, I think the, uh, I'm not exactly sure what the man's title was, but he was in the Russian government. He, he served in the Russian government, some type of head of, of, of uh, maybe some um, espionage, I think maybe was his, uh, his thing. And it's just the way he, ta- way, the way that he just crumbled under interrogation from Putin, because he knows it's, it's not, it's not just like disagreeing with your boss. It's, it's, you know, disagreeing with a, with a, with a alligator, you know, or a crocodile, they're, they're going to, they're going to kill you. It's, it's not, it's, you can't reason with men like him. And so one thing that I want to be clear on is that there are good people in Russia. Uh, I, I saw a story earlier as, as uh, there was a, a division or a company of Russian troops. Now, I don't know if this is true or not. This is one of those things that fog of war, you know, it could be uh, Ukrainians uh, inventing stories like this to boost morale and to discourage uh, more in- incursions. I'm not sure, but I saw a story that seemed seemed great if it, if it, it kind of turns out to be true of a Russian uh, 
group of 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 men. I, I, I don't know if you call them a division. You call them a troop. I don't know what what exactly uh, their classification was, but they turned over to the Ukrainian forces because they were lied to. They thought they were going on information gathering. They didn't know that they were there to kill uh, civilians and to kill um, you know uh, Ukrainians. And 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 it's just stuff like that. You know, you understand if you grow up in a totalitarian society. You know, there's this moral gray area about what the people support and what the people um, disown. I mean, you, you, you put yourself in that position to where there's no freedom of speech. There's no freedom, uh, a right to assemble. There's nothing like that that will protect you from having strong opinions. And then you have state-run TV where you're fed all of this uh, political narrative, this one story, this, you know, it, you, Russia can do no wrong and all these people are against Russia. You know, I think the standard line was that they were going in to denazify um, the Ukraine, which is insane because Ukraine, the, the Ukrainian uh, president or prime minister, whatever uh, his title is, uh, he is a Jewish man himself. And I feel like he's he's in great danger. I feel like they're going to try to remove the Ukrainian government and install some type of puppet regime. I think that's kind of what's going to happen. Um and so there's a many there's many reasons uh, going way back to why this is going on. I found a great article and I thought about just reading it. And I don't feel like there's any uh, anything ethically wrong with reading an article because uh, this is a free article. Um, but it was posted on um, Barry Weiss's Substack. If you're not familiar with Barry Weiss. I think you should follow her on social media, and I think you should read the stuff that she uh, gets uh, on her. Um, her webpage or her platform. Um, she, she, it's not just her. She brings in other people to talk. And, um, this is Zoe Strimple. And this is this, uh, it's the headline of this article is America is afraid of war and Putin knows it. And I'm not sure if you follow, uh, world politics or whatever, but you probably have noticed something different in the last 15, 20 years with America when it comes to, uh, Spreading the democracy, you know that 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 thing that we grew up. I say we grew up, Generation X. Uh, you know the older millennials, elder millennials, if you will, uh, grew up with a certain idea of American and what our responsibility was to the world. If you've noticed, that's eroded a lot in the last 15, 20 years. And I found this article very uh, enlightening. And so I'm just going to read it. I'm not going to say what parts of it I agree with, what parts of it I disagree with. But I think for the most part, it's it's a good, solid, um, accurate portrayal of what's happened in America over the last couple of decades. And so, you know, if this this bothers you, there's gonna they're gonna indict a lot of politicians from Obama to President Trump to obviously Joe Biden, who's the president now. And so this is this is the article. I'm just going to read it, and I'm going to link it in the description if you want to go read it yourself. I, th I think you should. But I thought it was, it was very enlightening. America is afraid of war, and Putin knows it. The invasion of Ukraine and the rise of the American or America's isolationist. Early Thursday morning, Russia began, uh, began invading U Ukraine. There have been reports of airstrikes in Kiev, the capital, and more than a dozen other cities. The 190,000 Russian troops that have been stationed around the Ukrainian border are now streaming over it. U Ukraine has declared martial law. The invasion, Putin explained just before it began, was not really an invasion, but a defensive maneuver meant to demilitarize, uh, demilitarize and denazify Ukraine. The West, Putin suggests, was making a lot of noise about Ukrainian independence because it was looking for an excuse to admit Ukraine into NATO and invade Russia. Ukraine never has a tradition of genuine statehood, Putin said. Monday. 
He added that if Ukraine were to join NATO, it would serve as a direct threat to the security of Russia. The Kremlin views of this conflict as part of a much bigger showdown between Russia and the West. If that sounds like cold, the Cold War, that's because in the eyes of the former KGB agent in charge of Russia, they're talking to Putin, the Soviet collapse was a catastrophe, and this is the part of righting that wrong. It is a relitigation of the titanic struggle we thought was over. There's only one country that can bring this relitigation to an immediate end and restore order not only to Ukraine, to Ukraine, but to the whole of Europe. And to do that, the United States would have to convince Putin that it is willing to go to war to protect Ukraine's territorial sovereignty. But no one believes it is. And I, I, I agree with this. Uh, occasionally, I'm going to stop reading the article and just break in with commentary, but I agree that it's 100% true right here. Um, deterrence is a simple equation. Capability times will. That's former National Security Advisor H.R. McMaster. I think that, this is still his, him quoting, I think that many of our adversaries today think our will is about zero. I think we're set up for a cascading crisis now in large measure because of the perception that our will is diminished. I'm going to pause here from this article. I was preaching over the weekend in North Carolina, and I quoted from one of my favorite books on World War II, or World War I, I'm sorry, uh, by Barbara Tuckman. It was called The Guns of August. I was preaching about the tribe of Ephraim, specifically what was said of them in the Psalm 78. It's a, it's a parable or a parabolic psalm, and it tells the history of Israel and specifically the tribe of Ephraim. And one of the indictments against the tribe of Ephraim is that in the day of battle, they turned their backs. Even though they were armed, they had uh, bows and they had arrows and, and they were carrying weapons, but they turned their back in the day of battle. And it, it reminded me um, when, I, when I read the, uh, the Tuckman book, she said this of Great Britain at the start of World War I. It said that they had the weapons, but they didn't have the will. They had what it took to fight. They had um, the necessary um, arsenal, but they didn't have the will to fight. And so what McMaster is saying here, uh, this general, this legendary general in uh, an American uh, military, he says that people are, are counting that we do not have the will, that our will is diminished. And so what is deterrence? He said deterrence is a simple equation, capability times will. What you can do times are multiplied by the will factor, the willpower to do it. And so uh, that just made me think of, of that. So let's continue reading the article. The problem is not just the United States has over the past two decades waged two unsuccessful wars in Afghanistan and Iraq, nor is it that Americans are tired of fighting and don't care about the former Soviet Union, although there's some, uh, there's some of that. Uh, in a poll just released by the Associated Press, just 26% of Americans say the U.S. should play a major role in the Russia-Ukraine conflict. Nor is it just that Joe Biden is a weak president who lacks the energy needed to do battle with the likes of Vladimir Putin. See, for example, the statement Biden put out shortly after the invasion was announced. It's that the United States seem to have forgotten the point of waging war or threatening to wage war. Peace is earned through strength. We can't ask for it. Talking about peace, you just can't ask for peace. We can't talk our way into it. We can't simply impose or lift sanctions. We have to achieve it by threatening credibly to pummel into oblivion anyone who gets in the way. There's a reason that Teddy Roosevelt's famous 1901 pronouncement speaks softly, and carry a big stick. That has become something of a cliche. You know why cliches are cliches? Because cliches are often true and they work. 
This used to be understood or taken for granted not only in Washington but in London, Paris, and every other NATO capital. That is no longer the case, in no small part because both left and right, while moving further apart from each other in almost every other respect, have converged on a shared neo-isolationism or neo-isolationism. Today, almost no one in any position of authority is willing to make a moral argument for going to war. If you grew up in the second half of the 20th century during the Cold War or immediately after, you often heard about American being the world's policeman. During this time, Britain watched its empire collapse and the American empire, which Americans never called an empire, rise. American pro- uh, America promised to respect freedom, democracy and minority rights, and it backed that up with force, a sprawling conventional army, a vast navy, thousands of fighter jets, and a nuclear umbrella that extended across the West. The author of this article goes on to say, I felt the safety of this promise keenly as a child in London. Most of my extended family had been decimated by the Third Reich, and the idea of a liberal and humane controlling authority was enormously reassuring. I'm going to pause right here. Um, There were some government officials in China, and we'll get to that later on. I mentioned it in the text to the young man that reached out to me that I think this will embolden China depending on the uh, world's response, specifically the United States and the West, how they respond to Russia here. I think China will move to um, do the same to Taiwan, uh, Taiwan, what they did to Hong Kong. And so um, this is one of those things that they said, one of their government officials a couple days ago said that uh, it's time for a humane global leadership. And it was referring to China. And it's like, man, it's, I, I know America's not got everything right over the last, uh, you know, in our, since our founding. But there is no comparison to the humanity that exists in America as somewhere like a China where they're actively imprisoning religious minorities and uh, using torture to uh, convert them and or stamp out their religious beliefs. It's insane and lunacy. But many people have uh, signed up for that type of thinking that America is so evil that it's baked in and the, the other countries like that, you know, it's time for them to step up and lead uh, in some type of moral uh, new humanist uh, type societies. It's insane. Let's go back to reading the article. Of course, America had many faults. There were plenty of Vietnamese who did not regard it as, as a beacon of freedom. The same was true of large pockets of Latin America and Africa. It was still haunted. Uh, it was haunted still by slavery. It had gotten much wrong at home and overseas, but still. Still, America was the crown jewel of the West, the culmination of a 2,500-year-old evolution that stretched back to the Athenian polis. It had hurtled human progress forward, creating gleaming skylines and world-renowned universities and an American dream that amazingly was open to the entire world. It was an invitation to everyone. At the heart of all of this was a new kind of civilization that transcended ancient bloodlines and tribal affiliations. It was rooted in the Enlightenment and its radical promise that all men are created equal, offered dignity and hope. It was held together by a democratic tradition and individualism that was rugged but tempered by a sense of community and duty and the rule of law. All of this is blindingly obvious but has become Almost embarrassing to say out loud, that's because we no longer know who we are or why it matters. Man, I think that's such a good line. All of this is blindingly obvious. If you look at the history, again, are we perfect? Absolutely not. But if you see what good the United States of America has achieved in pushing the ball forward in human progress and morality, the evolution of our government, it's, 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 it's amazing what we've been able to do. But it's embar- it's almost embarrassing to say that out loud. People don't want you to say that. They don't like American exceptionalism. But anyway, let's I'm continue with the article reading right here. Instead, we have be- become consumed by a simple-minded dichotomy. 
Fix America or fix the world. Repair America's infrastructure, broken schools, heroin addicts, and disappearing shorelines, or step in with force to protect countries, often ailing democracies, that look to us for security. Today, the United States is spending over $3 billion on defense, Bernie Sanders, then the mayor of Burlington, Vermont, said in 1988, giving voice to the worldview that has since become mainstream. At the same time, the federal government this year will have a deficit of $150 billion, quoting Sanders again. Three million Americans will be sleeping out on the streets. Tens of millions of Americans are unable to afford health insurance, and higher education is becoming an unattainable goal. Dream, not goal. Sorry. Tulsi Gabbard, running for the Democratic presidential nomination in 2018, echoed Sanders. We have spent trillions of your taxpayer dollars to pay for these wars, taking those dollars away from our communities and our people who need them right here at home, she said in a campaign launch video. Blake Masters, who is running for Senate in Arizona and a prominent member of a rising generation of pro-Trump America First Republicans, says on his campaign website, the American people have made it clear that we need to end our pointless interventions abroad and focus on our problems at home. In a recent opinion piece, Republican Josh Howley echoed this sentiment. The Washington elite have shelled out trillions of nation building abroad while families and towns in this nation have languished, denied industry and good paying jobs. So on the right, neo-isolationism seems to spring from a desire to make America great again and a conviction that the country cannot be repaired that has already been swallowed up by a woke cabal that controls every important institution in America life or in American life. This is not just true of the base, but of right-wing intellectuals like Richard Hania, the president of the Center of the Study of Partisan, Partisanship and Ideology. Quoting him, he says, We went to Iraq and Afghanistan, left after 20 years, and the same people are in charge, Hania told me. He was critical of a foreign policy established determined to portray Ukraine as a critical ally and Russia as an implacable foe of the United States. After the Cold War, he said, the Russians did, they did something that was historic and unprecedented. They basically gave up their empire. They woke up one day and said, it's not there anymore. And what the U.S. did was start was it started moving eastward, and it started making alliances with countries closer and closer to Russia's borders. In an interview with Tucker Carlson last week, Hania said, Who cares what happens in Eastern Europe? That's none of our business. The left, meanwhile, has succumbed once and for all to a long, percolating moral relativism. This started in the late 1960s on campus, where the post-structuralists and later the post-modernists deconstructed traditional notions of truth and morality. In the ambit of... This ascendant intellectual ecology making assertions like the West is a force for good or American or America is exceptional betrays at best naivete or or naivete or more likely a dangerous stupidity. In this view of the world, we are no better and perhaps worse than everyone else. This is quoting now um, a Yale Law University professor. Every war America has fought in our lifetime has made the world worse. This is Samuel Moen. Uh, He said this in an email. Moen mocked the war on terrorism. More people die slipping in a bathtub than from terrorism and far more on the roads, he said. Now we can add to that orders of magnitude more perished when a pandemic reveals how little has been done to offer protection from harm in our unequal society and the world. So it took a long time to arrive at this cul-de-sac. There have always been two poles in the American foreign policy universe, the isolationists and the interventionists. After the Soviet collapse, the United States felt was free to wage war whenever and wherever it saw fit, maybe a bit too free. After the 9-11 attacks, George Bush launched the war in Afghanistan, which made sense to most Americans, and then to the war in Iraq, which did not. Then came Barack Obama, who ran against those wars, especially Iraq. Trump codified Obama's foreign policy, transforming his predecessor's opposition to these particular wars into 
all wars. America first will be the overriding theme of my administration, said Trump in 2016, while laying out his thoughts before foreign policy, uh, thoughts about foreign policy in a speech in Washington, D.C. What, what I'm going to pause right here. What I like about this article here, he's not, it's not political, uh, uh, it's not a political polemic. This is one thing that's been bothering me over the last uh, several hours and the last few days is that whatever side you are on the political spectrum, you're using what's going on in the Ukraine and in Russia um, as some type of political cultural to beat up on Biden, Obama, or if you're on the other side to beat up on Trump and Bush. And what I don't understand is like the things happen in the world that are that go beyond American politics. I think our politicians will seize whatever they can to use as cudgels, uh, cudgels against the other side. But that doesn't mean we should, because I don't. I don't think that Putin is really, you know, thinking. I, I personally think that what they've done over the last four to eight years, when it comes to election meddling, that type of stuff, I think it was more to get us divided. I have, I have no um, premonitions that he was preferring this candidate or this candidate. I know what you're out there saying right now. It's like, well, we know that he was for this guy or this guy. Look, you know, and you can make your political points and you can score them however you want. I get it. I get there's there's good points on every side. What I like about this article is he he see he shows it as a progression and saying that all for all the division that we've had, it seems like we uh politically speaking have come down in this one cul-de-sac of isolationism. And so I want to pick back up here, but I wanted to say uh, that I appreciated that he's not indicting one political class or one political party. He feels like he's taking shots uh, at everybody that has led us to this place right now. And so let's pick back up on that. Under the Trump administration, no American citizen will ever feel again. Uh, their need uh, their needs come second to the citizens of foreign countries. He went on, I will never send our finest into battle unless necessary. And I mean absolutely necessary. And I will only do so if we have a plan for victory with a capital V. This is going. This is the article. This is the next paragraph. That's how we arrived at our current guns versus butter dichotomy, which posits that if you're for a robust defense that seeks to preempt violence and, and authoritarianism, then you're against doing anything about, say, American shrinking, uh, America's shrinking manufacturing sector. There have been other voices who have bought into this, mostly peaceniks like Sanders, but it wasn't mainstream until Trump ran and won on it. See, for example, his 2016 debate with Hillary Clinton in which he asserted that he was against the Iraq war, which is a dubious claim because he cared more about the economy. I think this has much to do with the collapse of our confidence on the part of our leadership as a result of the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. This is uh, Michael Continetti, a senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute and the author of the forthcoming book, The Right, A Hundred-Year War for American Conservatism. Iraq and Afghanistan broke the back of the Republican establishment, and it hasn't recovered from that. By the time Joe Biden sleepwalked into the White House, the argument against the interventionism has been fully digested and integrated into a political establishment. Hence, the Americans' mindless, unstrategic withdrawal from Afghanistan and, of course, their inability or unwillingness to stand, formed, uh, stand firm against the Russians. Putin is a much bigger threat than most Americans believe because his anti-freedom agenda transcends ideology. This is Gary Kasparov. This is a political activist and a chess grandmaster. This is what he said, continuing his quote. He will support anyone in anything that can disrupt the liberal world order that has allowed the United States and other free nations to thrive. He's talking about Putin. He's like, he don't care, Republican, Democrat. He's for anything that can disrupt um, the world order that has allowed the United States and other free nations to thrive. In the absence of American homogeny, Kasparov said, we can expect the Russians or Chinese to step into the void. The U.S. cannot afford to be isolationist because American global leadership is a prerequisite for American democracy. But leadership demands knowing who we are and what our values are and how those values distinguish us from others. 
That ability to recall why the West matters seems to have vanished. Recall what Trump told Joe Scarborough, uh, Scarborough in 2015 when pressed to take a tougher line against Putin. Well, I think some in our country does plenty of killing, Joe, or, or I, think, uh, I think our country does plenty of killing, Joe. This week, Tucker Carlson, arguably the most influential conservative in the country, suggested that all, uh, that all of Putin hate was misplaced. Has Putin ever called me a racist? Carlson said. Did he manufacture a worldwide pandemic that wrecked my business and kept me indoors for two years? Is he teaching my children to embrace racial discrimination? Is he making fentanyl? Is he trying to snuff out Christianity? Does he eat dogs? It's easy to understand the impulse to underplay the severity of what is happening right now in the Ukraine. No one decent human human wants war. War means death, destruction, and brutality. The idea that we might end one or end it once and for all is understandable. It just happens to ignore history and human nature. Recall that Woodrow Wilson predicted after the end of World War I that his League of Nations would bring an end to war forever. Instead, the war that was that war was just a preamble to a much worse one. The longer we pursue politi- policies of re, uh, retrenchment and withdrawal on either humane or self-interested grounds, the more we ground, the more ground we cede to our enemies, and the more blood that will ultimately be spilled. When Putin announced that war was starting in a televised address Thursday, he emphasized that any countries that interfered would face quote consequences that have they have never seen end quote. The question is, will anyone test that threat? Will anyone interfere? The Latvians, Lithuanians, and Estonians—they're wondering what happens if Russian troops steamroll over us too. If one of those countries was invaded by the Russians, it would no doubt invoke Article. Article 5 of the NATO treaty and would compel all other NATO members, including the United States, to come to their defense. But would they? This author asked. But would they? Or would they retreat and cower? Why? Or would they say that so? Uh, would they say what so many myopic and inward-looking voices have been saying for years? The Soviet Union is dead, or Putin just wants to control his fear of influence just as we do ours, or who needs NATO? What about China? The Chinese are watching the showdown between Russia and the Ukraine, and they are thinking, if Americans won't defend Kiev, will they defend Taiwan? And the author asks, will they? What we do now, these days, is we don't project power and strength, quoting again General McMaster. He said, going on to further the quote, what we, really, what we are really good at these days is projecting weakness. We will only do something militarily after you invade, end quote. Not long after I had the conversation, not long ago, I had a conversation with M, a former platoon commander in the British Army who did tours in Afghanistan and Africa and is now an analyst at the security agency. For professional reasons, he said it was important that he remain anonymous. M said, the current mess reminded him of Rembrandt's The Night Watch, which the artist painted in 1642. When I look at it, I see pure confidence and, sh- and assuredness of a place in the world, he said. These people, they're showing their wealth and their professional confidence. It's a portrait that suggests success at all levels. Then he pivoted. Everything that we don't have, I would say, in the West is this kind of strength of belief in ourselves and our values. You can make adjustments and whatever, but it's not going to do anything because that's not the problem. The problem is way, way deeper at a spiritual level. That's the end of the article. I'm going to post it in the show description. And as we close today, this is something I've never done here. Um, obviously, it's something that I do. Uh, hopefully, we all do on a daily basis. But I want to offer a prayer. Lord, we're asking right now that you be a shield and a protector of the innocent. Lord, there are many people that are living in fear tonight, not knowing whether they're going to survive to the breaking of a new day. But I pray that you would protect them. And Lord, be with our churches that are in the Ukraine right now. 
Lord, be with those believers over there. Lord, that whatever happens over the next few weeks, Lord, I pray that there is a church that is able to stand there, stand on your word, and to be bold in the face of this evil. Lord, I pray for world leadership, specifically for the United States and the Ukrainians and the Russians. Lord, I pray that you'd give us wisdom. Lord, that we could pursue peace, if it is all possible, that we could pursue peace with all men. And as it, as it depends on us, that we do the things that make for peace. Lord, I pray, God, that you would give us a, a renewed zeal for unity, unity in the spirit, Lord, in these evil malefactors that are causing harm on the world stage. Lord, I pray for the expedient removal of their influence. Lord, I pray, God, that you would, again, be with those that are suffering. Lord, I know that you're near the brokenhearted and those of a contrite spirit. Lord, I pray all these things in the name of Jesus.